Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If you have passive losses that you have to leverage, those losses can also offset any UBIT that may be due. And so you've got to look at your picture holistically. If you just look at one component and not really take a holistic approach, you may make decisions that on their face seem to make sense. But if you did a more holistic assessment of your personal situation, you might make a different decision. I'm excited to announce a new edition of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast called the Infielder Spotlight. You will see it every Wednesday starting May 18th in this feed with host Chad Ackerman. Chad, tell us about the new podcast. Thanks, Jim. So I had this idea in the shower because that's where all good ideas come to me that uh, I've always found podcasts interesting to listen to people's stories. And they were most intriguing when they talk about where they came from, what they went through, how they got into passive investing, because I've found it very relatable typically to my own journey. And it gave me confidence because a lot of their stories sounded like my own. So I usually would learn something from their journeys and felt like I could be successful as well. Therefore, I thought it would be great to interview people from our community and ask them to share their stories also. That sounds fantastic, Chad. So everyone, look for Chad in the Infielder Spotlight podcast beginning Wednesday, May 18th. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Russ Morgan, and you're listening to Passive Investing with Leftfield Investors. Today, I'm very happy to have Clive Davis with us. He is the founder of Park Royal Capital, a multifamily syndication group. Clive is also a passive investor, a lawyer, an angel investor, and a diversity, equity, inclusion champion. He left a high-paying corporate job as an attorney to go full-time in real estate, which we love to hear people ditching the W-2, as we call it, at Left Field Investors. So, Clive, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So the first thing we usually do on this show is 
just like to hear your journey. You know, I know you were an attorney in New York City and now you're a, you know, a syndicator, a passive investor, and you're all in on real estate. So can you talk about how you got to where you are and where you came from a little bit? Yeah. So the professional background is I started out as a corporate transactional lawyer working for a firm in New York City servicing kind of Wall Street clientele. So that's how I kind of cut my teeth as a young corporate lawyer. So I did that for several years, transitioned to being in-house counsel at the pleasure of, of joining Pfizer and working with them for six years. And then later in my career, kind of transitioned into the compliance world and ultimately became a chief compliance officer for a Belgian uh, pharmaceutical company. So all in all, a 20-year corporate run which ended in at the end of 2016. And that's when I, I made the pivot and made the full-time transition to the large-scale multifamily pursuits that I'm involved in now. However, I will say that for the 20-year period that was my corporate life, I was invested in real estate from the very beginning. I think my first real estate investment was back in 1999. I invested in a duplex down in Florida. I was living in New York City. My parents had retired to Southwest Florida, Cape Coral specifically. And so I bought a duplex there and that was my very first investment. And so throughout most of my corporate life, I was invested in real estate, small scale multifamily for the most part. And like I said, in the, it's in the last five years that I've pivoted and transitioned to bigger scale multifamily activities. And can you talk about some of the real estate that you were doing while you were still working the W-2? Because like I said, in our community, a lot of people are working to transition to where they're not dependent on the W-2 and that gives them financial freedom, right? You're either, you can completely get out of the W-2 or maybe decrease hours and all that. Was that a thought? Were you working towards that? Yeah. So I would say for most of, you know, I was blessed to be fairly highly compensated, relatively highly compensated for throughout much of my corporate life. So real estate was always something that was peripheral. It was ne never anything that I relied on. And that first investment that I mentioned was really a play for me to be able to assist my parents who had retired back in 96 so I basically set that up. I had rent payments going into an account that they were included on, and basically they had access to it. So I always saw the value of real estate, but it was never anything, at least during those days, that I relied on. And you know, I definitely recognized the benefit of it. So whether it was that two unit, a single unit that I moved out of New York City and continued to own and rent and, and still own it to this day, or a, a five unit that I acquired right after leaving corporate life. Like I said, I always had small multifamily and always saw that as a way of kind of supplementing. And, you know, in the years after leaving corporate life, that those small multifamily holdings really turned out to be a saver, a, a lifesaver for me in that it helped me bridge the gap before uh, I jumped off or what the activities that I was engaged in really took momentum and jumped off. And can you talk about how like your transition, how did you plan and how did you decide, OK, now I'm ready now I have enough passive income or was it no, I have enough savings so that I can get through the, the time until I build up the passive income? Because that's a major question and challenge for some of the people who are trying to reduce dependence on their W-2 or eliminate it altogether is what's the transition like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say there is no perfect time to make that jump. I don't know of too many people who have planned it perfectly and 
you know, had fully replaced their W-2 income and then made the transition. My story was more so of having accumulated savings that could carry me for some time such that I, I didn't need to kind of dive into another job or, or dive back into kind of corporate life. I've lived most of my life below my means. And so although I've been, as I mentioned, highly compensated throughout much of my W-2 life, I tended to live fairly modestly. So at the time that I left corporate life, I had no car. The only payment that I had was the mortgage on my primary residence. You know, anything else that I had was real estate that was either owned free and clear or real estate that covered itself through the revenue that it was generating. So no credit card debt, no car notes, you know, no lavish vacations. And so what was already a fairly humble or relatively humble lifestyle just got scaled back or peered back to just adjust for the fact that I was now in a position where I had more income or more cash going out the door. And I would say that I would joke for the first time since I was 18 years old, I was living in a situation where I had more money leaving the household than was coming in on a monthly basis. So that took some adjusting, getting used to. It was definitely a leap of faith. And basically, Jim, I just got to the point where I said, if not now, when? I was in my mid-40s at this point and had always had this kind of entrepreneurial itch, had always had this real estate interest, had, had not quite married those two interests together. And I just got to a point where I said, if I don't jump ship now, when am I going to do it? You know, it was a leap of faith. The safety net for me was that, you know, worst case scenario, if this kind of journey had not worked out, I always told myself that, you know, I can go get a six-figure job. It may not be something that I'm passionate about or interested in, but, you know, the family's not going to starve. Yeah, and it's always nice to have that fallback, right? I mean, you're making plans and you're you're burning the ship, so they say, but you left one in a cove somewhere that if you, if you absolutely needed to, you could go back to. So I think that's a good fail-safe. So talk about the journey since then. So you're done with the W-2, and now, you know, you're a real estate investor. What was the decision whether you're going to go passive or you're going to do active, how did you make that decision? And then how did you get started? I mean, I know you were making a transition, but how'd you make money, get more passive income, get more active income? What, what was the process there? Yeah, so all of the above. So for me, the first thing that I did is I was sitting on legacy 401k money from the last employer that I had departed from and my prior company, Pfizer, that I had been with. And so I had gotten to the point where I said I was not confident in the stock market and, and just leaving my money where it was to ride, ride it out. And because I knew I was going into this kind of commercial real estate world, I came upon, stumbled upon a self-directed IRA. And uh, that was not something that I was familiar with. In my corporate life, I, like most people in corporate life, had just heard about, you know, you've got your 401k, you can put up to a max, I think it's like 20 grand these days, I don't know what it was back then, but put up to 20 grand into your 401k each year, and then you've got 10 to 12 buckets that you can put it in, and they generally recommend you put 60% here, 30% here, and the other 10% here. And that was really all I really knew about retirement funds and what you could do with it. And it was attending a conference, a real estate-related conference, where I first learned about and heard about self-directed IRAs, which are, it's an IRA just by another name. All IRAs are effectively the same. But the, the beauty of self-directed IRAs is that 
you are directing where your investments go, there are really very few limitations, very few options or investment types that you cannot invest in. And I learned that there are trillions of dollars invested in self-directed IRAs with probably 60 plus percent of it devoted towards commercial real estate. So the first thing I started to do is, and this was all part of my education, and I call it my self-directed real estate MBA because I had committed that I was not going to go back to school. I was done with academia. But nonetheless, I knew that there was a ton of education that I needed to expose myself to and immerse myself in if I was going to pursue, you know, multifamily real estate in the way that I wanted to. So one aspect of that was invest in my retirement dollars via my self-directed IRA into institutional quality opportunities. And I happened to do that via a crowdfunding platform, particularly geared towards accredited investors. And I started looking at opportunities, reviewing opportunities, and then pulling the trigger and investing my self-directed IRA dollars into those investments. So these were not investments that were going to generate cash flow for me that I would have access to, because as you know, Jim, any any monies, profits, distributions would simply go back into my self-directed IRA and continue to be part of that plan. So I was more so interested in the long-term gain potential of these opportunities. It also afforded me the opportunity to learn how these largest scale transactions, how are they structured? What does investor relations look like? What does it look like to be on the limited partner side of these deals as a passive investor? And, you know, what does good look like? And conversely, you know, what does bad look like in this context? So beyond the ROI expectations that I had for each of these investments, I was also leveraging it as a way to become educated about these opportunities that I ultimately aspire to do myself, whether that was going to be 18 months away, two years away, whatever the case may be. I used all of that as a learning opportunity in addition to the opportunity to invest and hopefully make good returns on my investments. Hey, Leftfielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe This. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Let's talk a little bit about the self-directed IRA or dig in a little deeper. I know there's a couple different ways you can do it. Did you have a custodian or did you do the checkbook control? Because there's a lot of talk in our community about which is better. I know checkbook control, you can accidentally get yourself into trouble if you're not super careful, but it sometimes is easier because you have your own bank account and you just make the investments without going through the custodian. Which way did you go and, and did you evaluate both options? Yeah. So at the time, I was not familiar with the checkbook control or the solo 401k options. And, you know, the self-directed IRA made sense to me at the time. You know, I researched that, I looked into it, and I was comparing that option to leaving my money where it was. And I made the determination that the greater flexibility, the ability to put money into deals that weren't kind of just a cookie cutter, pick one of these 12 baskets, but rather invest in a sector, an asset class that I believed in, all made sense to me. So I did it via a custodian. 
And basically the custodian just handles the administrative part or aspect of investment. They take care of the paperwork and they will wire the funds out of your account to the sponsor for the particular deal. So that's the way that I went. I've subsequently learned about solo 401ks and that grants you that checkbook option. And there are clear benefits to doing that. And there are even some tax benefits. I don't want to go (laughs) into a rabbit hole, but there are some benefits to doing that if you qualify. And and every individual has got to determine, do I qualify to participate in a solo 401k? Do you have a business where you're going to be the sole employee? Do your circumstances, are they a good fit for a solo 401k? And do you have the discipline to make sure that you're not running afoul of the rules of the road with respect to checkbook control and investments that you might make? So the self-directed IRA has worked for me I'm probably going to end up with a self-directed IRA and a solo 401k. That's something I'm looking into now in terms of setting up a solo 401k. But like I said, every individual has got to make determination as to whether or not the particular requirements make sense for them in their particular situation. Yeah. And I'd like to dip our toe into that rabbit hole and not go all the way down because, you know, it's a journey, right? I did the, a similar thing where I started out with a self-directed IRA and it did have checkbook control, but then I started hearing about these terrifying things of UBIT and UDFI, right? Which are basically if the investment you invest in uses leverage, you might end up paying a little bit of tax. And so I quickly rolled over my self-directed IRA into a the self-directed 401k. But I guess the question I wanna ask you is since you've had this self-directed IRA for so long, Have you had any experience in paying that tax that comes with using leverage on your investments? I've not had any taxes due yet. I think this may be, I'm still awaiting some 401ks, but this may be the very first because I just had several investments that went full cycle late last year in the third or fourth quarter. So there's that potential there. I will say though, because this is something that I've looked into because I've heard about UBIT and kind of the downside of the the self-directed IRA. And one thing that has become clear to me is that a lot of folks who are marketing solo 401ks will overblow the extent of kind of that downside. And they'll focus in on what the stated potential taxable rate is. And where you really should focus in on is what is my effective potential tax liability? And in most cases, your effective tax liability is much lower than whatever the state is. I forget that I won't try and quote what the percentage is for UBIT, but let's say it's 30%. Your effective tax rate, which is more important and which is really the percentage for you to focus in on, is usually much lower when you factor in expenses that the sponsor will be looking to write off. You know, So for me, that's what I focused on. The additional thing to take into consideration, and again, everyone's personal situation is going to be different, but if you have passive losses that you have to leverage, those losses can also offset any UBIT that may be due. And so you've got to look at your picture holistically. If you just you know, look at one component and not really take a holistic approach, you may make decisions that on their face seem to make sense. But if you did a more holistic assessment of your personal situation, you might make a different decision. That's great. You know, that is really good to know because you nailed it. I think the 401k people that are advocating to switch from an IRA to a 
401k for self-directed, they do focus on that UBIT and UDFI. And they got me scared enough that I'm like, okay, I'm going to transition to a different product. And lately, I've been hearing people say the things that you just said, that it's not as burdensome of a tax as it seems. And it might not be cost effective to make that change because these are expensive plans to set up. And so I think that's a nice thing to hear that it might not be as big of a problem as you think. And also, it might make sense to go beyond what the marketing people are saying and dig into your own situation and see if you're going to have that. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd like to go back to the crowdfunding because, you know, there's kind of a, a journey for a lot of investors in our group where maybe they start with single family homes and they're active investors, then they find out there's passive and maybe they first find out of that through crowdfunding and then they go and find out about um, the syndications that we are doing more generally, which aren't the ones on crowd crowdfunding platforms. Can you talk about your crowdfunding experience? Maybe what which platforms you were using, what the returns were like, what the experience was like as compared to investing in just a regular syndication as we think of it? Yeah, so I'd prefer not to use the name of the platform. <laughs> we'll go into that. But suffice to say that there are multiple platforms out there, and I can share a list of them. If you just Google, you know, crowdfunding platforms for real estate, you'll get a half a dozen, if not a dozen names that will show up. They all generally function the same way. They all have some sort of vet-in process for the sponsors and the deals and opportunities that they allow on their platform. The platform that I invested through, which was one of the earlier plays, they generally have sophisticated sponsors who have substantial assets under management, have done multiple deals, and they rate each of their sponsors based upon their tenure, so their experience in the game. So you know, if they're seasoned, you have an indication as to, you know, what makes them seasoned versus someone who's uh, doing their first opportunity. And, and that's part of your evaluation. And then generally, they all have a, a webinar. The sponsors will do a webinar where they will fully present the deal, open themselves up to Q&A. You'll have an opportunity to ask questions. The platform itself has already done its due diligence. And so, you know, to the extent that you can attribute any kind of credibility to the platform, you can take some measure of comfort in that they have vetted the sponsors and the deals that go on, on those platforms. In terms of returns, it, it varies widely and kind of returns that I, I was seeing being offered back in 2017, they look much slimmer today than they did back then. But generally, I would say that you were looking at anything between a multiple of 1.6 and 2x your investment. Generally speaking, from an internal rate of return standpoint, most of the investments that I were in tended to be in, in the mid to upper teens. So the 15% IRR up to you know 18, 19% IRR. Again, because most of pretty much most of these investments that I made were via my self-directed IRA, I did do some with cash on hand. And so for those ones that I invested with cash, distributions, quarterly distributions or, or periodic distributions, you know, that was money that I would actually see. But generally speaking, like I said, between a 1.6 multiple and a two multiple was generally, you know, what you could expect, depending on the whole period of the investment. I've invested in ground-up development. I've invested in existing multifamily. I've also invested here in Atlanta in, in a portfolio of three hotels. So there's a lot of, there's wide variability depending on, you know, what the asset is. Obviously, if it's a development type activity, 
there's greater risk involved and with greater risk, you should anticipate and expect and demand, you know, greater returns. Uh, for example, I'm invested in a ground up micro unit development in San Francisco, which is a 10 year hold. And so, you know, that multiple is closer to a 3x multiple. So it really varies depending on the type of asset, obviously location and the whole period. Yeah. And so location, you know, San Francisco, that's someplace that almost nobody wants to invest, right? Because because the, the market is just difficult and it's California. And I see you're also in Los Angeles and, and it seems like you're in Washington, D.C. as well with some of your investments. Can you talk about markets? Because I know you're also in the typical Atlanta and some of the Texas stuff. So can you talk about how you pick markets and what the difference maybe between some of those really expensive San Francisco, LA, DC as compared to maybe Atlanta and, and some places in Texas? Yeah, so great question. I would say that in my personal business and what Park Royal Capital is focused on today, I would say that I my criteria is very different than what my passive investor criteria was, you know, four or five years ago when I first launched into investing passively into deals. So today, Park Royal Capital and what I'm focused on day to day basis, I'm essentially exclusively focused in on the Georgia and more specifically the Atlanta Metro. These are for active opportunities, large scale multifamily acquisitions that I'm pursuing. In terms of my passive investing and markets that I've invested in, you know, I've invested in states like Texas, like Georgia, like Florida that are deemed to be or considered to be a landlord friendly states. So that's certainly one of my criteria, both definitely as a active investor, I've only pursued opportunities in what, what are considered to be landlord-friendly states and with a focus in the Sun Belt and even more refined and focused on Atlanta. I was generally, when I was starting out, I was much more looking at the type of deal. Would this be something that I would invest in or would this be something that I would want to sponsor? And so you know, whether it was a, a development opportunity in Austin, Texas or San Francisco, like I mentioned, or whether it was a, you know, a hotel portfolio that was, you know, within radius of me where I live. Uh, there were other factors that I looked at beyond kind of location alone. I would say today that some of the investments where I am now, some of the investments with the knowledge and information and education that I've gained since, I might not do the same investment today that I did four or five years ago. And like I said, I would not be seeking out an opportunity in California or in New York to take out to private investors via a syndication, for example. So, you know, we're talking about population growth, job growth. You know, we know California is losing population to places like Austin, Texas. I'm invested in the ground up development in Austin, Texas right now. And part of the marketing of that 300 plus unit multifamily development is, hey, Silicon Valley, you can live and play in Austin and Texas, keep your Silicon Valley pay and work remotely from Austin and live in a place that offers you a much lower cost of living than living in San Francisco or somewhere in the valley. And so you do have an exodus of high income salaries and jobs out of places like Silicon Valley to places like Austin, Texas and other places in Texas and other places in the Sun Belt, Phoenix and others. So I think one thing that I recommend for any passive investor is figure out what your criteria is and then pursue opportunities that meet your criteria 
but also recognize that your criteria isn't fixed. You know, my criteria four or five years ago is not my criteria today. And if you're constantly keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening, you should be open to evolving your criteria, refining your criteria and making adjustments accordingly. That's really well said. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking it's a journey, right? I wouldn't, some of the investments I made five years ago or longer, I wouldn't make them now. It doesn't mean that they're bad investments or I didn't know what I was doing, but frankly, I probably didn't know what I was doing. You know, but now with the knowledge I have, I've been learning, I'm farther along on my journey and I'm, I wouldn't invest in those same things today. And so I think it's great to see someone able to evolve and change and your recommendation, you know, figure out your criteria as a passive investor. That's fantastic. And then allow that to change. So now you are a syndicator, right? And you're looking mostly in Atlanta. Are you partnering with other operators? And what kind of deals are you looking for? And is it mostly in Atlanta? Yeah, it is. And so I got awarded my first deal last summer and we ended up closing that deal in November. So that first one was a 244 unit that we acquired just under 30 million. And within a week or so of closing that deal, we were awarded a second deal, 200 unit, uh, just over 40 million. And so those first two deals have really gotten the ball rolling and I'm trying to seize upon the momentum. And all of the relationships that I've established here in Atlanta, having my boots on the ground here in Atlanta, which is part of the reason, Jim, why I am focused on the Atlanta Metro. In addition to the fact that Atlanta, any list that you look at, Atlanta is going to be in probably in the top three multifamily markets in the country. You're going to see jockeying between kind of some of the Dallas uh, or DFW markets, Phoenix, you're going to see Atlanta, maybe you're going to see Tampa. But invariably, you look at any kind of list, kind of uh, paying attention to kind of strong multifamily markets, Atlanta is going to be high on that list. And so for me, having boots on the ground, it's enabled me to be to position myself as kind of a partner who has boots on the ground, has relationships, has the ability to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting that a partner who's not located here might not want to do or be able to do. And so on these first two deals, I've partnered up with partners who are based in uh, Dallas, Houston, and LA. And, you know, I kind of take the lead role with respect to asset management. You know, I kind of locate the deals, underwrite the deals, and then, you know, we all come together and raise the capital we need for the deal. And we all chip in in terms of, you know, our, our expertise, our experience, and like I said, me being here on the ground, I kind of run point and leverage my other partner's experience whenever needed. And how do you vet those partners? And how is that different than a passive investor vetting a sponsor? Are there similarities? Are there differences? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there are definitely differences. And I would say, and I, I tell people, there's probably not a week that goes by where I'm not imparting advice to people about kind of the importance of making sure that there is an alignment of values and kind of worldview when it comes to getting into bed with someone and becoming their partner. These deals, as you know, Jim, typically these deals are a three to five year hold, plus or minus. And so for that, the last thing you want to do is to partner up with someone that it turns out that you are not a good fit for a variety of reasons. And so for me, I was fortunate 
my story is not one of overnight success. And so before I got the first deal, it, it took me the better part of two years before I landed that. So this is me offering, submitting letters of intent, LOIs to acquire properties and, you know, being a runner up, being a bridesmaid, almost uh, being awarded a deal, but not getting over the hump of being awarded a deal until, like I said, last summer. And so during that two-year window, I had an opportunity to establish a relationship with someone who we both agreed that we wanted to work together. We wanted to partner. He was a more seasoned syndicator with multiple deals. He probably had four or five deals that he had syndicated at that point in time. And in addition, he'd also been heavily involved in some development-related activities in Dallas. And so he and I were chasing deals. He was kind of my preferred partner, plan A, to the extent that I was able to find a deal and secure a deal. He was going to be my partner, provided he didn't have a conflict of interest in that, you know, he had a, another deal that he had landed on the similar time frame or timeline track. And so over the two years of me chasing deals, underwriting, submitting offers, you know, filling out buyer questionnaires, that gave me a real opportunity to get to know him very, very well and, and, and him to similarly know me very well and kind of what made us tick and kind of our risk appetite. People underestimate the importance of alignment on that front, because if you have a high risk tolerance and your partner has a low risk tolerance, that can be a source of tension. And there's nothing that brings out tension more than when money is involved and money is on the line. And so, again, to the extent that you're able to determine those things before you get awarded a deal, that is ideal. And so in addition to that partner that I just mentioned to, uh, I met him in a mentorship program. And each of my other partners that I alluded to earlier, I met them in the same mentoring program. And so I knew that they had gone through kind of the same multifamily education and philosophy, but I didn't necessarily know them as well personally in terms of what's their risk appetite, what are their values and things of that nature. But having kind of the initial partner who I, like I said, had been chasing deals for a couple of years and had an opportunity to get to know really well that was a really solid foundation to then pull in other partners that either of us had some kind of connection to or relationship with. That's great. That's, that's a great explanation of kind of how you partner up. And I think alignment of values is, is critical in any partnership. I want to kind of change gears a little bit here. We're, we're getting towards the end, but, you know, I know you started a community and, you know, left field investors, that's what we are. We're a community. We're huge believers in the power of community to help people beginners, but also to help people who've been doing this for a really long time. So can you tell us about the community you started? Why did you start it? And what do you guys do in your community? Yeah. So a few years ago, this is all pre-COVID. I started as part of that self-directed real estate MBA that I joked about. I started attending real estate conferences in person for the first time. So for the first time, I'm attending conferences where an employer is not footing the bill. It's not related to my W-2 job. This is my personal interest and me saying that I need to get educated. So let me go to venues and seek out opportunities. So I started doing that and I found that a lot of these events, you know, there may be 500, 600, a thousand people in attendance. I was always disappointed at the representation of African-American attendees. And so after one of those conferences, I think a handful of us got that I had connected with at one of these conferences 
said, you know, we need a way to communicate and share information, share inspiration. And so I seized the opportunity and I proceeded to set up the African-American Multifamily Investor Network. And the whole idea was really to just create a forum, a community where we could share information, share inspiration, share examples of people having success in the multifamily space and kind of disabuse folks of the notion that large-scale multifamily is only for kind of an exclusive group and kind of insular and, you know, just diversify the picture of what it looks like when you think of large-scale multifamily acquirer. So I've set up that group. The group size is now, I think there's about 1,200 of us in the group. And we have people who have never owned real estate, whose aspiration it is to do a house hack or to buy a duplex and live in one side and rent the other and that be the start of kind of them accumulating wealth through real estate. And then we have people on the other end of the spectrum who are doing portfolio acquisitions where they're taking down 1,300 units in one transaction. And so we have both ends of the spectrum and everyone in between, but the focus is on multifamily. And it's really about empowering the community and curating a space where people feel that they're seeing and learning from and being exposed to people who have a similar background to them. And it helps them kind of disabuse themselves of the notion that that large-scale multifamily, maybe it's not for me. And to the contrary, our message is absolutely it's for you. And uh, there's a community that you can tap into to help you in that journey. I love that because I think there's all kinds of communities out there and and I know it's difficult to run one and get one going, but you know, to set one up and to help people get into it and then to just offer resources, that's great. So I commend you. I think that's a fantastic thing. The last question I always ask on the podcast is what is a great podcast that you listen to? Could be real estate or anything else. Oh man, I am a Part of that education that I mentioned, I became a junkie of podcasts. So I probably have about three dozen podcasts in rotation that I'm listening to at any given point in time. I don't have a favorite. I get something different from each of them, but I am going to answer the question and I'm looking for one now that I think... It's like picking your favorite child, right? It is. It's tough. I'm going to give a shout out to Peter Harris, who's one of the co-authors of Commercial Real Estate for Dummies. So if you've seen that book in Barnes and Nobles or on Amazon or whatever, he's the author behind that. But he has a podcast. I think he's a really great educator. His podcast is the CPA podcast, Commercial Property Advisors, hosted by Peter Harris. So that's one of the three dozen that I have in rotation at any given point in time. Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. And then if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm very active on Facebook. You can reach me by email, Clive at parkroyalcapital.com. You can reach out to me via text. I mean, I'm sure, Jim, you'll include this information in the show notes. Absolutely. But I welcome text messages. I welcome email outreach. You can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn and Facebook. And I pride myself on uh, getting back to you within usually 24 to 48 hours, even if it's just to say, I got your message. Give me some time to come back to you. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate that. We'll put all that in the show notes. And again, thank you for being here. This was a great conversation and, and I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jim. I'm really pleased that I was able to join you. 
This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was a fun conversation. I always enjoy hearing how people exit their W-2 to, to do something else, right? To work for themselves or to retire or whatever it is. And, you know, here's one where, you know, Clive exited the W-2 and was relying on savings because, you know, he had a high paid job and presumably moving from New York to Atlanta, your expenses go down. So he was able to live off his savings until he could generate more passive income. It sounds like he was in a lot of development deals. So it was probably took a while to pay off. So he didn't get the passive income set and then get out. He put money in the bank and got out and then developed the income afterwards. So it's always nice to hear that. I also was interested in how he did his IRA because he used his kind of like I did as a test, right? You're investing in things that maybe you wouldn't invest in now that we know a little bit more and we've been on this journey for a longer period of time. But knowing that you're not going to use that money for quite a while, you can use it kind of to test and make sure that that you're doing the right things and you're in the right spot. I also thought it was interesting, this UBIT and UDFI issue in a self-directed IRA, the marketers for the EQRPs and the self-directed 401ks, they're always hammering on that. But maybe it's not that big of an issue. And instead of doing what I did, just following along and being, okay, I'll just go get my self-directed 401k, maybe you sit down with your CPA or with somebody and analyze your investments in your self-directed IRA and figure out, is this going to be an issue for me? And it was interesting. He said, sometimes your passive losses inside of your self-directed IRA can offset some of that UBIT and other things. So those are things I didn't know. I, you know, always consult your accountant about that, but those are really interesting things. And I think it just make sure you're educate yourself before you make the leap. And sometimes what I do is I make the leap and that's how I get educated. And that's not always the best way to do it. The other thing that Clive mentioned was figure out your passive investing criteria. Now, that sounds basic. Of course, you're going to have a plan and figure out criteria. But too often, we just see something, shiny object, and we go invest in it. But if you have a box where your investments fit in and something is outside of that box, it's easier to pass on it if you already have that criteria in place. And the most critical part of that, in my opinion, is to make sure your criteria changes and grows with you, with your education, with your learning, with changes in the market, all of those types of things. It should not be static. It should be ever-changing. And so that was fantastic advice from him. And the final thing that I really liked that Clive said was make sure you get alignment on values. And also, this is something that seems obvious, but too often we get into business with people that maybe we don't have the same values as, and then that causes conflicts down the road. So when you're investing in a sponsor, when you're talking to a new accountant, a financial advisor, you know, any of these people, an attorney, people that we have in our lives, make sure to the best extent you can that you're comfortable with their values and they're comfortable with yours. And that way, that is one less conflict because in business, there's always conflicts and discussions and things change. But if your values align, you have a much better chance at success in all of these relationships. So I got a lot out of that episode. I appreciate Clive coming on. We'll definitely keep in touch and keep watching him as his business grows. 
And that is all for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 